Welcome back, everybody, to another Health Mastery Podcast episode. Today is number 50, and I have on with me Dr. Cody Hahn. So we get all into the weeds of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, if I could say that properly, how we influence that or can we influence that with certain types of training styles. You may have heard, you know, focusing on some sort of metabolite block or higher reps or shorter rest periods. We talk all about this. We also get into why perhaps high-intensity training or high intensity cardio isn't inferior for fat loss even though it's primarily burning muscle glycogen or carbohydrates rather than fat and we talk about should we influence or change our training style depending on our level of glycogen so if you're in a really depleted glycogen state like specifically we talked about the end of a contest prep should you be focusing on maybe less glycolytic work and we talk about a lot a lot more. We get pretty in-depth into some physiology stuff. So if you're someone that's interested in that like I am, then this would be a great episode for you. If you uh, want to take on the free natural bodybuilding course, please just click the link in the show notes here. And if you want to learn more about coaching, go to healthmastery.co. But without further ado, let's get into this episode with Dr. Cody Hahn. Cody, man, thanks for jumping on the podcast today yeah thank you for having me man yeah i've been following your work for quite a long time and uh i know we've planned this for a while i know you're you're super busy so uh really looking forward to chatting today um the, the stuff that you do and the research that you've done is something that's particularly of interest to me so um for those who probably or who don't know who you are uh would you be able to do a quick introduction uh what you do your background etc Sure. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Cody Hahn. Uh, my background is in exercise science, exercise physiology, particularly. Uh, I got interested in that uh, pretty quickly in undergrad when I started wanting to build a significant amount of muscle mass uh and got really interested in the physiology of that that process and of course that led me to also develop a, a high interest in nutrition and so i finished a bachelor's degree in exercise science at east tennessee state university in 2013 and that makes me feel old officially thinking about that <laughs> Uh, and then I went on to do a master's degree at East Tennessee State University, uh, really focusing more on sport physiology um, and the specific uh, physiological adaptations that occur from different types of training and how nutrition can affect those uh, adaptations. Um, so I finished a couple years there. Uh, my last year there, I... I found a gentleman named Dr. Mike Roberts uh, in the scientific literature that was doing some very interesting research at Auburn University, and that was while I was writing my master's thesis. And uh, fortunately, I was able to connect with him and do a, a PhD at Auburn University, uh, studying in the molecular and applied sciences laboratory. Um, and we investigated the uh, molecular and moving up to even the whole body uh, response to various exercise and nutrition interventions. And so I was there for about four years and I got really interested in 
the variability in responses to interventions. Um, so we could take 30 or so subjects and everyone do roughly the, the same training program, right? And people inevitably could respond very differently. Uh, and that uh, really interested me and I'm still uh, interested in that area um, individual responses to, to training and, and nutrition and supplementation. Uh, but as I really uh, developed, uh, like I say, an interest in that, particularly the last couple of years at, at Auburn. And then I moved on to a, an assistant professor position and a researcher position at uh, LaGrange College in Georgia. Uh, and I was there for a couple of years. Training program design, uh, sport physiology, classes like that. And that was a good time. And more recently, about a year and a half ago now, uh, my wife and I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, uh, here in the States. And I decided to start my own uh, lab. I've called it Dr. Hans Fitness Lab, but I'm doing that. Uh, most of the, the time now working in, in the lab, I do a variety of things, but it's really focused on helping people to train and, and eat uh, in an optimal way for their goals uh, with a particular interest in health and physique and force performance. Um, so I, I help people with that. And part of that process is research, right, and data collection. And so I, I provide different testing services. And so it's a nice cycle where I'm doing some research and I'm also helping people to apply that research to practice. Um, and when I'm not in the lab working, I spend a lot of time uh, every week uh, reading uh, research and writing. And so I, I write for Wade Olive publish every month, uh, James Krieger and Dr. Uh, Brandon Roberts. Uh, and I publish some research reviews every month. So read a lot of papers and try to synthesize, uh, synthesize those and consolidate the, the concepts into um, easy to understand concise articles and try to help people similar to the work that I do with in-person clients. This is mostly online help people with program design and setting up their nutrition and supplementation. And so that's what I'm currently working on. And uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens outside of academia. It's different out here in the, uh, in the industry. Yeah. That, that, that's a great introduction. So do, do you want to hear something interesting, an interesting fact about Auburn, Auburn university? Uh, that you probably don't know that's related to, to Ireland. I don't know. I don't know if you knew, but I'm actually in Dublin, Ireland. Um, but the only ever Irish born NBA player went to Auburn university. Pat Burke, his name is. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. So cool. if there's a really super difficult pub quiz, that would be like the, like who wants to be a millionaire. That'd be like the million dollar question because it's, it's, pretty difficult <laughs> but yeah he, he, he wasn't thank you for he, equipping he, me with that yeah he, he wasn't great i think he probably career averaged like two points a game or something like that but uh, <laughs> but uh that's that's the the only irish born nba player so let's see maybe there's going to be another one soon um but yeah as far as 
the history of basketball in Ireland. He's the he's the only one. Um, Place to yeah. be, War Eagle man, War Eagle Auburn <laughs> University. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Auburn. Um, yeah. So to, to jump into the topics today, Cody, um, because of your background, I, we I had some specific questions that I kind of wanted to get into that I think you'd be really perfect for answering. And I know you've been doing a bit of writing on this before, and, and even some some research as well on it. And that is um, the metabolites or or sarcoplasm hypertrophy. So, if we kind of reverse back to, I don't know, maybe, maybe ten years ago or so, we there's often thought that there was three kind of mechanisms for hypertrophy: so um, me- mechanical tension and muscle damage, and then uh, what, what is this sacroplasmic hypertrophy or, or uh, metabolite focus? I'm not sure what the exact term was, but those kind of three. Um, now there seems to be maybe a little bit less focus or maybe some new evidence to show that perhaps muscle damage isn't as important as we once believed. Um, and, and, and then I, I guess some of the work that you've been looking at is, is the, the sarcoplasmic element of that. And, uh, I suppose we'll start with if you could explain your words because you'd be much better than I would be. What exactly is the sarcoplasm or sarcoplasmic hypertrophy? Well, yeah, I can give that a shot. Um, we have defined it uh, a couple different ways in different papers as as we've thought more about it and developed our thoughts more. I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure how helpful it is to to term it that. I mean, I think that it's there's a, a article where we we critically evaluated the uh, biological construct of hypertrophy, and that sounds hand wavy, but the point of that was to really just kind of think about and talk about our ideas on muscle growth and how a muscle grows, and we can agree that hypertrophy refers to an increase in muscle size, right? And the the point of terming uh, a mode through which that occurs, uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, uh, really was originally to denote a a disproportionate or, or slightly larger increase in the sarcoplasmic or non-myofibrillar fraction of skeletal muscle. And so a a skeletal muscle cell, when we uh, take a biopsy and we look at the the structure of of muscle, we look at what it's composed of. It's mostly myofibrils, uh, these thread-like structures that contain the uh, contractile. And that's probably about 80% of the, the muscle cell space. But then other than that, we have a couple of other primary structures. Uh, One of those is uh, the mitochondrial reticulum. Uh, So that's kind of a newer term, but as it turns out, it looks like the mitochondria aren't single bean-shaped organelles. It's more like a reticulum that seems to uh, traverse through the uh, myofibrillar network in muscle. So we have mitochondrial reticulum and then we have a, a sarcoplasmic reticulum in, in skeletal muscle. And the sarcoplasmic reticulum is the site of, of calcium uh, release. And it, it's really what facilitates uh, muscle contraction. And so that takes up a good amount of space. And then fluid, this 
gel-like fluid called the sarcoplasm uh, is this, this aqueous media that kind of suspends everything, right? And, and in that, in this aqueous media, we have metabolic enzymes, we have other cell organelles like ribosomes, for example, uh, ions, etc. And then, of course, we have a, a cell membrane that uh, it's a phospholipid bilayer that, that houses all of that, you know, and compartmentalizes it. So that's kind of the, the structure. And the term sarcoplasmic hypertrophy relates to an increase in the size of muscle fibers due to an expansion in elements of the muscle other than the myofibrils. And traditionally, um, if you search through the literature and you look at uh, various definitions that have been used for hypertrophy, uh, there's a theme in the research uh, really that denotes this concept of a consistent proportionate increase in myofibrillar protein as a muscle cell increases in size, which isn't illogical. Uh, that was really kind of the dogmatic assumption uh, before, yeah, at least in uh, more the, the scientific community. Uh, the If you look into uh, some of the lay articles, um, even uh, back around 15 or so years ago, there's mention of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and this, this possibility that a muscle cell could grow from training um, by adding structures and fluid and uh, other components than myofibrils. And that could manifest as a larger muscle, uh, even perhaps visibly to a point. Um, and the, the thought was that higher volume training and bodybuilding style training facilitated that uh, type of hypertrophy and then heavier load training, more like powerlifting and weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting. So heavier loads uh, facilitated more what has been referred to as myofibrillar hypertrophy. But really, I think it's important to zoom out and just conceptualize that we're referring to muscle growth. We're talking about uh, an increase in the size of a muscle. And we know that that happens in response to resistance training. So some of my research for my PhD and what we started to uh, explore really is in the early stages of high volume training. So on the order of six to, to eight weeks or so, um, does that style of training, more of a shorter rest interval, relatively lighter loads, high volume approach, uh, could that increase muscle fiber size due to an increase in uh, the sarcoplasmic fraction or the non-myofibrillar fraction of, of muscle cells? And yeah, so honestly, I expected to see in response to the, the training program design that we used for my dissertation, which in short, we added set volume uh, each week over the course of six weeks, and we held the load constant at around 60% of estimated one rep max. And it was more of a 
people call these different things, but I don't want to call it a circuit because it was barbell style training. Um, but it was meant to be a dense session with relatively short rest intervals between sets and exercises. Uh, but enough for us to facilitate good technique. And we supervise these sessions. But that's not, like I would say, classic, you know, heavy load, bodybuilding style training. It had more of a, uh, a sense of urgency, urgency to the session. Um, and it was meant to be relatively lighter in load and higher volume to examine what happened when you overload that way and you use that style of training, what occurs? And there's been some comments about the design of the, the study that it's suboptimal for, for hypertrophy. And I mean, to that, I would say, well, sure. I mean, the, the design wasn't meant to be the best program for muscles. It was to examine how uh, muscle changed <laughs> And how body composition changed using such an approach. And so what we really uh, took a look at after we did, well, we, we published a few different papers out of the dissertation. It was a, a big study, took a lot of muscle biopsies and blood draws and um, had three different time points uh, for the, the first six week part of that. And then uh, some subjects donated an extra biopsy. Um, after an additional week. So it was about seven weeks and a lot of data collection. And we've explored a variety of things, but in, in relation to our conversation today on sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, in the individuals who exhibited, uh, we, we refer to it as a notable increase. So above about 300 microns of an increase in fiber cross-sectional area. So when we take these muscle fibers out and we slice them and put them on a microscope slide and we visualize them and size the individual cells, individuals that displayed an increase in fiber cross-sectional area, we took a look at the, the nature of that increase and we wanted to better understand what increased in, inside of the muscle cell, what about the muscle cell uh, increased. And what seemed to happen, man, just to kind of fast forward and, and make a long story short, because this is kind of complicated stuff to, to answer. Um, it, it appeared that myosin and actin protein, which are the, the two contractile proteins in muscle, uh, it appeared that the, the concentration of those decreased somewhat. And that sarcoplasmic protein concentration tended to increase. And we probed further and even took a look at, okay, well, if the sarcoplasmic protein concentration is increasing in response to this style of training, what proteins are actually increasing in, in concentration or in, or in abundance? And so we did uh, what's called proteomics, where you actually investigate the, the, the proteins that are being expressed in a biological sample, in this case, skeletal muscle that we took out of uh, individual quadricep muscles. And so we, yeah, we took a look at the specific proteins and it turned out to be, um, it appeared mostly like metabolic enzymes, glycolytic enzymes and enzymes involved in harvesting energy from stored glycogen. 
Uh, creatine kinase was another example of, of a metabolic enzyme that appeared to increase. Um, there was a, an ATPase that increased in relation to um, the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And so theoretically, it could be, you know, that, that style of training, at least in the short term, and these were well-trained uh, young men uh, that we personally screened that had at least six months of, of lifting experience mm-hmm. and could squat um, one and a half times their body weight or more. Uh, and it appeared that that style of training uh, upregulated the of proteins in the sarcoplasm and, and some of those individuals in a subset that, that actually grew from it. Um, and that, that growth, right, appeared to be primarily due to increases in um, the, the sarcoplasmic protein uh, concentration and potentially other structures and components of muscle than myofibrils. Did you, did you guys compare that to a control that were only that maybe had longer rest periods or or did or did like heavier weights or was it did it, did everybody just follow the the intervention? Yeah, that's a good question. So no, we did not. And, and that is an important, I think, component of, of study design going forward for training studies as, as a control group, um, even like a non-training uh, control group can, can yeah. be really useful from a statistical standpoint. So do you think that um, perhaps, and I, I know there's still probably gaps in the, in the literature where we then kind of have to try and translate this best practices for somebody looking to, to, to maximize muscle size, but not necessarily has it doesn't necessarily have a preference. Like they're not a strength sport athlete, so to speak. They don't express their, their, their outcomes through a, through a lift, like not powerlifting for bodybuilding, for example, would it be beneficial to try and maximize or, or focusing on different um, types of training or, or programming to, to maximize both myofibular and uh, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy? Or do you think that if we're training close enough to failure within the typical bodybuilding rep ranges, regardless of, of, um, of kind of rest periods that we will maximize those? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, I think that your question really is, should a person that's interested in maximizing muscle growth train using more of a, a shorter rest interval, lighter load approach with higher reps per set? Should they include those in their program that also would include heavier load training? Exactly. Uh, and, and Yeah. So in other words, does the combination of the two result in more muscle growth than using one or the other type of, of training style? Mm, yeah. Uh, the question, what, what, which one would you like me to address? Yeah. So, so basically the combination of should one include both a higher rep style training that, you know, like you said, in those late articles going back even a number of years have, have said, you know, to focus on, uh met- metabolite work you should uh, and in, in essence uh sarcoplasmic hypertrophy you should focus on like pump high rep work with short rest intervals but then you should also do periods 
or some sort of periodization with lower rep strength based work maybe not really low rep but like you know six to eight or six to ten reps yeah yeah so maybe those individuals were right and time will tell i think we need to do more research honestly um when we found what we found we were i mean man we went back to like the 1800s in terms of literature review to better understand what other scientists had found and how they had described the nature uh, of muscle growth. And from our perspective, and like I said, the the Frontiers in Physiology Review article, um, the critical evaluation of the biological construct skeletal muscle hypertrophy, that would be a link, I think, for some of the listeners. I mean, it takes you through the time of discovering how we measure muscle growth and what others have found. And from my perspective, there's there's enough evidence in humans to, to believe that sarcoplasmic hypertrophy or an increase in the fraction of skeletal muscle cells other than non the, or other than the myofibrils, that seems to occur to an extent. Uh, in certain contexts, but some of that's in like one of the first studies uh, was in dog muscle. Uh, and then there's limited data in humans really describing this phenomenon. Um, and of the data that does exist, which is limited, really looking at the ultrastructure of muscle, it appears that at least in the short term, you can see a little bit of a disproportionate increase in, in the sarcoplasm. But eventually, I think that there's enough evidence if you look at muscle protein synthesis research and you look at some of the other studies that have measured changes in myofibril protein concentration, that eventually we, we see an accrual of myofibrillar protein and an increase in size, you know, that's due at least in, in good part, if not mostly, uh, due to myofibrillar hypertrophy Mm. but unfortunately the nature of training programs when you look at the interventions used in in training studies that have also looked at changes in the sarcoplasm and in the myofibrillar components of skeletal muscle the training designs vary widely so there's just not really a, I would say, an evidence-based argument that I could make that would demonstrate that, yes, you should do metabolite accumulation sets and, and supersets and monster sets with really light loads and high reps. You should do that and do high load sets of three to six, you know, heavy, heavy loads you should do both of those for maximal muscle growth. And here's how you have to sequence it. That, that evidence just doesn't exist um, at least in the scientific literature. But I mean, from a physiological standpoint, I can share like my opinion and I'll, would you like for me to do that? Or was Please that? Go ahead. Okay. Like, I think that a combination of the two styles of training makes sense. You mentioned that the, and this is by Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. uh, He published a review article about 10 years ago now 
that pointed to the three primary mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy. And he referred to those as mechanical tension, uh, metabolite accumulation or metabolic stress and muscle damage. All right. And I think that that, that is largely the case. I think it's really some combination of each of those things. And I don't think that it's good to, well, let me, let me, let me stick with metabolite accumulation. So I don't get too weeds. Um, when we think of it that way, I think that's a fair way to conceptualize how resistance training signals for muscle to grow. So mechanical tension being the primary signal, but then perhaps some level of metabolite accumulation and muscle damage. Now with the, and the, the mechanical tension thing is, is very robust, right? We know that exposing muscle fibers to tension, to tensile forces, uh, is the, the key signal that, that signals for an increase in muscle growth. But I think that the way that I, I like to, to view it is that metabolic stress or metabolite accumulation and damage, so an actual perturbation to the structure of, of a muscle cell, are, at least during most forms of resistance training, are consequences of mechanical tension, right? So when we're contracting our, our muscles, we're generating tension, that costs energy. And that energy, we, we use ATP for energy to contract our muscles. And that energy, ATP is stored in a very limited amount in muscle cells. And we, we produce ATP uh, using different bioenergetic pathways. Uh, one of those pathways is glycolysis. And that's the breakdown of carbohydrate, stored carbohydrate in the form of glycogen uh, into lactate. And so we, we engage in glycolysis. Let's say that we're doing a set of six to 12 reps. And we know from the research that glycogen using that kind of training structure somewhere between six and 12 or six and 15 reps for multiple sets does tend to decrease muscle glycogen concentration. And that is lactate, depending on the nature of the sets. And we, we generate several other different things that we would lump together into this category, especially in these sets, uh, in this metabolite category. But metabolite is a really broad term. So a metabolite is really anything that's formed from metabolism. Mm. So I think what we what people seem to mean when we talk about metabolic stress or metabolite accumulation uh, relative to signaling for a muscle to grow, I find that lactate uh, is, is one metabolite that individuals think might be causative to an extent or contribute to a muscle growth response. And then perhaps uh, changes in pH uh, and there, there are other potential components and how do we see, or how do we see a decrease in pH? Well, we generate hydrogen ions as a consequence of metabolism, particularly glycolysis. And if we're not buffering those hydrogen ions very well, then that can decrease muscle pH and that can cause that or contribute to that burning feeling 
that we experience, right? When we're doing like a, a high rep set, and uh, that's likely due to um, hydrogen ion concentrations increasing uh, locally in that region. Uh, and it's the, the evidence on this though, like how much those factors contribute to muscle growth and an increase in signaling associated with muscle growth is very limited. So it's very limited. And since we're talking about like my opinion on it, I'm careful to speculate, but so we're confident about the mechanical tension piece. How much does the uh, metabolic stress piece contribute? I think we've got to do more work to better understand this, but the some of the cell culture research and research in rodents points to the potential uh, of lactate to be in some way uh, an anabolic signal for, for skeletal muscle. Now, how much, uh, like how do you actually, what is the best way to train to do that, to generate a lot of lactate? I mean, that's not entirely clear, like how you would want to set that up in a program. But I mean, from a physiological perspective, higher rep sets where you are filling that, that burning filling uh, to a point, right? At least we, we could be confident that we're changing the, the state, the, the metabolic state and the, the pH locally. Uh, in the muscle that we're we're trying to signal growth, and perhaps that is a unique way to to signal for muscle to grow beyond just those tensile forces that the the cells experience when we're contracting the muscles against a load. And um, perhaps, in other words, lactate signals for certain proteins in muscle cells to be activated and to tell the the genome, the DNA, to transcribe uh, mRNA, and then mRNA can be translated to proteins, uh, and that is protein synthesis. So in other words, that lactate signal might encourage an increase in muscle protein synthesis um, above and beyond in some way the tensile forces that are experienced. during contraction. So I think that it's, there's, there's enough evidence related to lactate particularly. And we're, we're writing an article on this now with um, one of my uh, former graduate students, uh, Daniel Lawson. Um, We're going to be putting some of these ideas into a paper, uh, particularly related to lactate and exploring, you know, different training methods that, that might augment that response, but, also taking a look objectively at the evidence and looking at the limitations of some of these studies that have, have shown a potential relationship. So the, the jury is still out, I would say, but in my opinion, I think it's worth doing a little bit of that metabolite accumulation style training, um, yeah. at least, at least for part of your training. Um, and it's, and it's not just for the metabolite accumulation, right? Like when you're, <laughs> If we're talking about high rep sets uh, that are performed close to to failure with the intent to get a good pump and to generate metabolites, you're still contracting muscle fibers, 
right? Mm. Like you're still you're still getting that tension response, at least in uh, probably some of the smaller twitch fibers that are innervated by the the smaller nerves. So you're still getting some tension in the muscle, right? So in you know in one way it's a you're, you're still getting that tensile response, right? And and that's a, an important signal for for muscle growth. So yeah, yeah, I I think. Um, uh, I think what people focus a lot and maybe don't understand the the mechanisms enough, and it sounds like the like you said, the jury is still out that people can end up missing the forest for the trees. And because if you're just to think about, oh, okay, lactate is this anabolic signal, then you know what can I do to increase my lactate? And you know you could train in the heat, you know, in a very hot environment will increase glycolysis or uh, if you go for a run before you train legs um and that obviously doesn't, doesn't translate into when we're looking at the, at, the, at all the data that you know they're not necessarily good ideas um and i think that's probably where a lot of people can not necessarily cherry pick things but when we don't have the full picture um people can focus on these these things especially like supplement companies or people who want to market uh you know lactate supplements or something like that maybe that's maybe something coming in the future but i think um like you mentioned uh even if we're training in a a higher rep range even if there appears to be no benefit down the road which may not be the case but may be the case you're still you're still you know you're still trading um or you're still get you know you have to have that mechanical tension and overload and we've seen similar uh, some of the work I think by Brad Schoenfeld has shown similar hypertrophy results from higher reps versus lower reps once the uh, once the number of I think hard sets are equated. So it's not like you're you know throwing a dart and, and hoping that you're going to get some muscle. If, if you just did exclusively only higher rep work, which I don't know why someone would do because sometimes it hurts a lot, um, you, you would still get very good gains. Yeah, to a point. I mean, what's interesting is the minimum intensity that is probably mm-hmm. necessary. I think that's another important consideration yeah. when I say intensity. I should specify intensity of load. Um, there was, a, and I think that the the name, the last name of the first author was uh, Lascivious, and I may be uh, mispronouncing that, but they uh, took a look at a variety of intensities uh, if memory serves i believe it was 20 40 60 and 80 percent one rep max and it was a, a bicep curl model on a dynamometer and they controlled for volume they equated volume between the the intensities of load so one arm and i i would have to go back and look at the exact design but uh, like one arm of a participant would do 80% and then another arm would do either 20, 40 or 60%. Um, and they took a look at, I think it was four sets to failure for like 12 weeks, a couple times a week. And the 40, 60 and 80% resulted in really no different, uh, or there was no difference in muscle growth. Muscle growth occurred to a similar extent using each of those intensities but then the 20% load, it was around, I think, half of the growth of 40, 60, and 80%. And I found that to be an interesting, an interesting paper. 
Um, why uh, the 46 to 80%? I, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but perhaps it, it was related to metabolite accumulation. Um, I, I think it likely has more to do with recruiting larger fibers uh, and larger nerves um, using the heavier loads. Do you think that, sorry for cutting across you. Do do you think that um, the, it's the case that it, you you build up so much metabolites through this, through that lactate pathway that you simply can't get close enough to failure to recruit those larger motor threshold units because the pain is so intense that you just you don't you don't get to that point where you're able to recruit all muscle fibers because you have to stop because fatigue or because of pain yeah that's a good point man um and that yeah that would be like a caveat of using that style of training uh and i I mean then it gets in we could get into what are the limiting factors of performing a set like why do why do individuals actually fail um, why do they stop a set? And that can vary from person to person. You know, for on one hand, I think some people terminate sets uh, because they they might get bored <laughs> if they were going to do, um, uh, you know, 50 to 60 reps on something. But yeah, I mean, perhaps the, the metabolite accumulation response uh, and that change in local pH and that burning sensation uh, results in fatigue to the point that, and at least like maybe you pain, pain and fatigue that would, yeah, encourage someone to stop the set before they really get into those those larger uh, motor nerves and the larger fibers. And this idea is the the size principle. Mm-hmm. Right. That uh, as we get closer to, to task failure or uh, the heavier loads that we lift, the larger the nerves and fibers that those larger nerves innervate, we recruit. When we lift a light load and we're relatively far away from failure, we recruit the smaller fibers and the, the type one fibers primarily, or the slow twitch fibers, the smaller fibers with that are innervated by smaller nerves and that's the size principle. And so the idea is if the closer that we get to failure, the more of those that we're recruiting and we're providing insurance that we're, we're maximally stimulating growth in all of the fibers. So I think you've touched on a good idea that perhaps if you overdo the metabolite accumulation side of things that, that might interfere with um, being able to tap into those larger but then it's like, well, one of the reasons that you accumulate metabolites, again, is related to glycolysis. And the type 2 fibers are glycolytic. They're often called fast or, or slow glycolytic. The terminology on fiber typing is a little, there's variability in what people call these things. But type 2 fibers are, are classically referred to as glycolytic um, mm-hmm. and they're more fatigable but they can um, grow bigger right right well it seems so it seems that they really like resistance training <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it seems that they do uh, and they they tend to 
yeah, grow more from a period of, of 12 to 16 weeks, at least of resistance training. Um, yeah. Yeah. But so I'm, a, related, go ahead. a related question to that was, um, is like you, you, you touched on like how, like if we're training with higher reps, it's primarily going to be anaerobic glycolysis and uh, using, you know, the, the lactate pathway or the, the Cori cycle, whatever. Um, and and we're, it's going to be pretty glycogen depleting. And, and that's you know, what we see in like bodybuilding style when, you know, you have the peak week where people do higher rep work to deplete glycogen. Then when it comes to like, a, say, a contest prep or when someone's really dieted down and they've got, they're, they're on low calories, like, I don't know, you often see sub 10 calories per pound of body weight when you're, when you're super lean. Um, and people, you know, they have that colloquially terms flat look where they're just pretty depleted of, of pretty much everything. Um, but, but particularly glycogen. And then I believe in the research, it's something like when your glycogen depleted, when your levels of muscle glycogen are depleted below like 50%, there's like a critical value of, then that starts to impair muscle contraction because it impairs calcium release from the sarcoplasm um, or the sarcoplasm reticulum. Do, do you think then that it makes sense for somebody to focus on less glycolytic work, like more of that phosphocreatine kind of rep range where we're talking maybe below 10 reps, maybe above six reps, but not maybe so much as the higher rep range because we're, we're going to be affecting our performance more. I, I don't know if this is just, me thinking about mechanisms and that may not necessarily translate over to the real world application but do you think that kind of theory would make sense because i often hear people different ideas of we should train with lower reps because um because what i've just said or you train with higher reps because you know it's not as fatigable or it's not as fatiguing centrally in lifting you're lifting less weight essentially and you're specifically referring to like proximity to a show yeah when when i'm talking and someone's in a depleted glycogen state so when 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 someone's like super lean you're pretty much always glycogen depleted or you're very low glycogen depleted uh, because you need to be to to continue losing body fat when you get sub you know eight percent or something like that for a male yeah, well, we want to, I think, use resistance training during that period to defend muscle mass, right? We, we want to yeah, defend sure. it. And it's interesting how little uh, training can maintain muscle mass, at least in a eucaloric state, mm. <laughs> when people aren't starving to, to get shredded, right? Yeah. So that changes things. And we know like short-term calorie restriction does appear to lower muscle protein synthesis and increase muscle protein breakdown. Um, and so we, we know that when we are dieting, there is a little bit more of a risk to well, lose a little bit of muscle mass um, more if you're in a severe energy deficit, uh, but it's also harder to build muscle mass. Um, now with that said, we want to, we know that like protein intake Appropriate amounts of protein intake and resistance training are two of the most powerful combatants against losing muscle mass. So I would say that, especially in proximity to the, the show, you we want to be doing some uh, resistance training. Now, of course, the closer that you get, I don't, I don't think that you want to do a lot of tissue damaging and 
uh, like really, really hard training sessions um, the week of the show, because that could disrupt your ability to pull glycogen into the cells and look really full. Um, and with that said, I think you move weeks away. The, I mean, I don't, I'm not convinced that training should look all that different than what it had to get you there, except for just trying to one, be careful, right. Um, and not doing too much volume and lifting too heavy of a load at that point, because you are also likely at an increased risk of injury. Um, and you don't want to sustain an injury at that point in, in the game. So I think as long as you're within a few reps uh, of failure and you're, you're doing around 50% of the volume that you've been doing uh, for the previous couple of months, that would likely maintain muscle mass pretty well. And then the nature of that volume, I think similar, uh, and you could make a case that you'd want to do more, um, which this, this gets into context, right? And we would need to know more about someone's specific training program and what they've been doing. But we would apply a lot of the same concepts, the same principles, right? If, if we're talking about a minimum intensity of load, I would say you probably don't want to go lower than about 40 or 50% of your one rep max. Um, but you're also pretty fatigued and you're likely doing a good bit of cardio around that time. So going above like or, or less than three reps per set and doing 95 to 100% of your one rep max probably isn't a good idea. And so that leaves us in that rep range of around five to 30 reps. Um, probably more on the assistance training side is where I would sprinkle in higher rep sets. And, and still have some some multi-joint compound moves in the program um, done around that six to eight range. Uh, but then that's where monitoring comes in, right? And making sure that you're not getting disproportionately sore. You're not really, really fatigued. Using exercise selection carefully. Um, but yeah, I, I could go on and on about that. But I guess that's a, a truncated answer to that question, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I guess mine was just, I was just thinking in terms of like when we get, when glycogen gets below a certain level, it starts to impair force production. And maybe if we had a certain rep range that would perhaps give us the same mechanical tension, but wouldn't be as glycogen depleting, it may be preferential or pref, is that the right word? It may be a preference, uh, but um, yeah. I, 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 I don't know if, if you, when, when you take into account all the other things that you said, like fatigue, soreness, um, I suppose levers, then when, when people are super lean, probably they probably override that very minute kind of question. Well, but I will say, man, what's what's interesting, I just reviewed a study from um, Davies at all for biology and they took a look at cluster sets. Um, and so that's kind of related to what you're talking about, mm. but it was like four sets of five on the bench press. And that was completed twice, uh, each week for, I believe eight weeks. And there were two separate groups. One group did cluster sets. The other group did traditional sets. So the cluster set group, uh, they rested 30 seconds between reps 
of the bench press. Both groups used 85% of their one rep max as well. And that was tested every couple of weeks during the study. So around 85% of their one rep max on bench press, four sets of five twice a week. So a total of eight sets of five. The cluster set group, uh, they separated their reps by 30 seconds. So they would do a rep and then 30 seconds of rest, then do another rep. So the traditional sets, uh, and I believe that there was three minutes of rest uh, between sets for the cluster set group. And then the traditional set group, they did not rest between reps. So they did five straight reps each set. And I believe they rested um, three minutes between sets. And so it was volume equated. And the traditional set group that did not rest between reps, they took ultrasound of their pec at three different locations. And it appeared that the traditional set group grew more muscle in their pecs than the cluster set group. And I thought that was really interesting. And it kind of relates to our conversation now. Like, why, why is that the case? Maybe the muscle activation patterns were different and more of the, the larger type 2 fibers were recruited um, in the, the traditional set group. Uh, but maybe it was due to a little bit more metabolite accumulation and they were more proximal to failure. And that was a unique signal for muscle growth compared to the cluster sets. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah that, that, that's really interesting. I, I've, I've never, haven't really looked much into the cluster sets, but it does sound perhaps maybe that the proximity to failure is maybe more important than maybe than we think, but um, more, more work. And that would be uh, really interesting to see. Um. Yeah. Yeah, one of the questions that I that I had for you, and we talked about this over email a little bit, was um, since we're on the whole different energy pathways, um, something that's kind of been almost debunked, I suppose, more more recently in the last few years, and 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 even a lot of kind of people who aren't in in the scientific space kind of know this as well, is that that high intensity cardio is not inferior to lower intensity cardio um in terms of fat loss so um yeah maybe maybe some are used for for practical purposes in different in different senses or different cases like you may not use a high intensity cardio when you're super lean for for sake of injury and just fatigue but if we're looking at purely energy systems high intensity sprints or or something on the elliptical or, or some sort of all-out bursts of energy is primarily going to be glycogen depleting and not necessarily fat oxidation oxidative process right whereas if we're looking at a, a lower intensity cardio you know something that's like 50 percent or, or around that of your vo2 max like, you know walking or something like that uh, fast walk is going to be primarily fat oxidative or at least quite a high percent of it will be you know using fat a lot of that's been kind of accepted that it's there's no real differences but in terms of the actual outcomes but there must be something that's going on right in 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 the body in terms of how our body shifts our energy systems if the outcome in terms of fat loss isn't different because when we're doing that hit we're not just 
utilizing fat right as an energy source so is there something that goes on when we've depleted glycogen say early in the day we do a hit session later in the day is our does our body kind of notice that we're, we're low in glycogen and then preferentially shift to more fat oxidation for everyday activities where whereas if we hadn't done that hit it would be say more uh, anaerobic does that make sense that question that was a lot. Um, <laughs> I think probably the whole podcast on this. Yeah. Well. Yeah. This is a, a pretty. There's a lot of physiology to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do have. I mean, some comments though on on like the difference between the two and, and the implications for for fat loss. Um, if that's would that be helpful? Yeah. Of course. Uh, so I think that when you look at this is interesting because I during my master's degree, uh, I was going to do for my master's thesis, I, I was going to take a look at what's called excess post-exercise oxygen yep. consumption or, or EPOC. And so I did a, a lit review before I, I ended up changing my my thesis and pursuing a different project. But I did a literature review for an entire semester on epoch now this has been gosh six years ago um but the take home for me from from reading a lot of the research was different than i expected going into it and so let me talk about uh, epoch so epoch is excess post-exercise oxygen consumption and what it is referring to is this increase in oxygen consumption that occurs when we stop exercising. In other words, someone is consuming slightly more oxygen than they would be at rest, typically, uh, given the fact that they just did exercise. And so there, there does seem to be an increase depending upon different variables related to what type of exercise and we'll get into the implications of hit versus less or low intensity steady state. But the, the idea is that we consume a little bit more uh, oxygen after we finish exercising epoch and oxygen consumption is directly related to calorie expenditure, right? They scale. So, the more oxygen we consume, the more energy we're expending. But the, the fuel, the substrate that we're utilizing to expend energy or to derive energy from can vary between primarily glucose and uh, fat. And so, all right, how does this tie into HIT and uh, lower intensity cardio, like steady state cardio. To your point, you said that HIT high intensity interval training, where we work really hard for like 20 or 30 seconds, and then we take some rest, that is a, a glycolytic task, if you will. Now, that assumes that someone's really pushing it for 20 or 30 seconds. So think like sprints or cycle sprints. And yeah, indeed, we, we primarily use glycogen in, in that time domain for like that 20 to 30 second bout. And then when you rest, you shift back into, and, and again, this varies from person to person, but this is the way we think about it. You, you have that 
either you passively rest or you do like some sort of low intensity active recovery and your, your heart rate decreases, right? Your, your respiration rate decreases and you start to, to use a little bit more fat perhaps during that rest interval and then you ramp it back up. And so over the course of 15 to 20 minutes, you end up burning through more muscle glycogen than fat during that window of time. And now Epoch suggests that when you leave the gym and you go home and relax or whatever, uh, that the you're going to still be expending energy and perhaps burning fat after you finish that, that hit bout. And that's not incorrect, but from the research that I've done, it, it actually seems to be quite low like the amount of, of fat that, well, the amount of calories, I should say, that you expend as a result of epoch after a, mm-hmm. a pretty intense bout of, of interval training, it, it might be about 10% of the energy that you extend. What's that? It, it probably gets even less the, the fitter you get. Exactly, right? That's what we would expect. But it might be about 10% of the energy, the calories that you expended during the, the bout. So let's say that I expended 300. It might be 30 calories extra. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a negligible amount, right? Uh, now, hey, that there's a little bit of research that shows a little bit longer and maybe a little bit more than that. Um, like you're, you're burning more calories after a bout of really intense training for maybe as long as 24 hours or so. Uh, but it's still, when you math it out and, and the research that I've done, it doesn't seem to be all that much, but it's something, it's something right now with low intensity steady state for, for fat loss, like you said, you're typically going to be submaximal, um, like 50 to 60% perhaps of a VO2 max or around there for, for your heart rate. Uh, the talk test is a pretty good indication of that. Like if you're doing cardio and you can talk legibly, um, you're probably primarily using fat for energy still. Um, and the idea is that, well, yeah, the, the percentage of substrates that you're utilizing during that intensity for maybe 45 minutes or so uh, is primarily fatty acids. Now, the, how metabolically healthy someone is and fit they are affects that. But that's the the idea. And so it's a uh, direct oxidation of fat. And so, hey, maybe that's better for for fat loss. But on the net, when you look at the research, I I mean, it it doesn't seem to be all that different. Um, And that's why I tend to, I try to help people conceptualize it like fat balance, you know, and, and think of it more from an energy balance standpoint. Uh, and, and creating the appropriate energy balance and yeah. a combination of hit and uh, low intensity steady state can be used, but there are scenarios where I would say hit is contraindicated. I think that you want to be really careful with how you, you include that and, and what that looks like, like a, a 250 pound bodybuilder running hill sprints. Yeah. Is probably not the the best idea to avoid injury and not to interfere right with lifting. Uh, 
Um, but maybe, you know, cycling and, and rowing and, and different things like that for the physique enthusiast could spare the joints a little bit, right, and not be as fatiguing if you did choose to do HIIT. And then there are some other guidelines, like not doing it too close to training. Um, I think that's another way to negatively impact your gains is doing too much cardio around your lifting. Um, yep. But so yeah, one I, way I was thinking of it was like if if we had two of the identical the same person and that was cloned, if one was doing exclusively hit and the other was doing a matched uh, low intensity cardio, including you know including the epoch, um, at the end of the day, you would think that the person doing the hit would have a lower glycogen status. And if both are in the same calorie deficit, that, that would mean the lower intensity individual would have used more energy from either dietary fat or a dietary, uh, or sorry, so, or endogenous fat, so body fat. So I, I guess there's a shift then in, in how our body would use energy or you know fat or carbohydrates throughout the, the rest of the, the remainder of the day. Does that make sense? If, if we are to see that same outcome. Yeah, yeah. And the why would be interesting to discuss. But I mean, yeah, if you do something that's glycogen depleting, and here's the other thing, the like lifting weights, right, is a form of of high intensity interval training. Hmm. So as you know, someone who's doing bodybuilding style training, especially looking to, to do fat loss, right, for a phase, uh, resistance training is a form of high intensity interval training, I, I would you know, throw that out there. But if let's say that you did your lift in the morning and you were relatively glycogen depleted and then did uh, some form of conditioning to those low glycogen stores, could you augment fat loss? Well, perhaps, but I mean, that would probably do be due to a reduction in the intensity that you could effectively maintain. Um, you know, if, if your glycogen stores are really low and you try to tap into that higher intensity domain then and the substrate isn't there to support that work rate then you're going to slow down right and you're you're going to be using more fat for for energy um so does that answer the question a little bit yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean like uh the body is pretty dynamic right in terms of um we can't necessarily kind of trick it into um into into burning certain certain substrates preferentially preferentially outside of the intensity that we we kind of do if that makes sense right well i mean of course nutrition can affect mm-hmm. that i mean we know that people who do a long term ketogenic diet do seem to have higher maximal fat oxidation rates and yeah, when you do fasted cardio, maybe during the actual bout, during the actual session, you you burn a little bit more fat. But I think ultimately you got to look at, again, fat balance over the course of the day. How much fat is someone consuming versus how much they're, they're oxidizing? And there's there are a variety of approaches that can be used, I think, on an individual basis to accomplish the the goal that that you want there are some people like i say that maybe they would love hit and it fits within their program 
Um, but I think if you, if you have someone that's expending a very similar amount of uh, energy and consuming a very similar amount of energy and one does hit regularly, uh, the other one does resistance training and some low-intensity steady-state cardio, I, I'm not sure that the, the fat loss results would be really all that different. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? If they're yeah. creating the same negative energy balance. Yeah, and I, and I get, I guess someone could ask then, you know, why not just consume z- basically like, you know, I don't know, five grams of essential fats, but then we get into the de novo lipogenesis kind of thing where, where we, if you just eat a super high carb and protein diet and basically no fat, you can still store fat if you're in a surplus because of de novo lipogenesis, right? But I think we probably won't go there. Yeah, that, yeah, now we're getting into some, some deep <laughs> physiology. Uh, yeah. I mean, you have to consider that fat is like the, we were talking about a phospholipid bilayer earlier for muscle. I mean, that you, you, and that you have turnover, right, of, of these structures and you have to support that. Um, especially if you're damaging the ultrastructure of muscle through your training, the membrane, right, can take on damage and you need more lipid to support the repair of the membrane. Cholesterol derived hormones, right? That those are important. Mm-hmm. We want to support testosterone and estradiol and cortisol, right? And we want to have healthy cell membranes and you want your brain is mostly lipid. We have, you know, the nerves, uh, myelin sheaths, you know, we, so fat isn't always bad. You know, we could get into like the quality of the fat, the, the yeah. amount of it, but yeah, there's, I would say a minimum that's supportive of health that you, you really wouldn't want to go below. Mm. Well, well, Cody, we're, we're about on time and uh, it's been really great talking to you and we've got some into some really interesting topics there. And uh, I know some of those we probably could have done multiple podcasts on themselves but um where can people find more about the, the work that you're doing right now yeah yeah i appreciate it man um those are pretty nuanced topics hopefully we, we didn't get too often into the weeds there um yeah so i have a website that's uh, just lab.fitness if you type lab.fitness in um that's my website that tells you a little bit more about the work that I'm currently doing. And then one of the things that I'm really trying to, to do more of uh, this year is to share more educational content. I'm doing that in a couple different ways. Uh, right now I'm uh, writing for Weightology, the research review, and I think that's a tremendous publication. Um, and that's worth checking out. Uh, every month we review between six to eight studies related to muscle growth and fat loss, nutrition, other related topics. We boil those down into concise summaries to help people apply uh, scientific research to practice. And so I'm I'm enjoying that. uh, So I'm running for that. And then I'm putting out content uh, more on social media. So uh, some infographics and things like that. And so I do have an Instagram and my handle is at Dr. Cody Hahn. So at D-R-C-O-D-Y-H-A-U-N. And so follow me there to keep up to date with me. And then I I write a a newsletter. It's going to be a bi-monthly opportunity for me to share a research highlight 
or a podcast interview or something I think will be valuable for people. And that's free to subscribe. Um, I have a link tree on my Instagram page and you can just type in your email to receive those. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, those are the main things now. I mean, I'm doing a good bit of collaboration on research and so, and collecting data myself. And so I have a research gate page where I'm going to be sharing publications that I'm a co-author on. So I'm collaborating with a variety of people uh, across the, the world and um, I'll be doing some publication myself. So ResearchGate is where I share uh, updated research that I'm working on. And I think that covers it, man. Yeah, great. I always share all those in the show notes. And, uh, you know, next time you're at an alumni party for Auburn, you, you know the, the 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 fun trivia is that the only Irish player to, to be – the only Irish-born NBA player went to Auburn University. See if anybody else knows that. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. 